Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes, almost 600 episodes and counting, are made available to you for free. I invite you to support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just one day. Hi, how's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. How are you? Thank you for listening. It's good to be with you. I am thrilled to have Elisa Gabbard back on the program for a second time. She has a new uh, book out. It is called The Word Pretty, relatively new. It's available from Black Ocean Press, and uh, it's a collection of lyrical essays that has been making waves. And, you know, this is an indie press book, and over the years I feel like I've developed a pretty good eye for when a book is really resonating, and this is one of those books. It's a, you know, an indie press, small press book that has been generating a lot of excitement in the literary community and has been getting coverage uh, from the mainstream book press. So, you know, on a certain level, I feel like this is kind of uh, Elisa's uh, breakout book. What I'm saying is that I feel like people who know books know Elisa Gabbard, or they're getting to know her. And uh, my prediction is that eventually a lot more people are going to know about her. So I'm just very excited to catch her at this particular moment. She came over, sat down with me, and we talked and just had a great time. So you're going to hear that just in a, you know, a few seconds. Before we get there, I do want to say thank you to listeners who reached out to me after last week's episode. Uh, I, in the monologue, read an email from a listener who suggested that I crowdsource uh, transcriptions of this podcast. And, you know, creating transcripts is it's one of those things I should have been doing all along, but it's labor-intensive, it's time-intensive, and it's uh, money-intensive. And I now have, <laughs> I have like almost 600 episodes that need to be transcribed. And it's just this, it's like this problem in my head. Like, how am I going to do transcripts? Uh, you know, like, uh, I don't even know what it would cost, but it would be, it would be stupid. And 
So this listener uh, wrote to me and said, "Hey, why don't you crowdsource it? Why don't you, ha- you know, why don't individual listeners take on one or two or three or four uh, episodes and transcribe them, and we can all just kind of uh, put our heads together and get this done?" So I read her email, I responded, I thanked her, and I heard from a, a good many of you who were kind enough to reach out and volunteer. So I just want to thank those people who uh, offered to transcribe. They are now presumably uh, regretting <laughs> that uh, extension of uh, kindness and goodwill. But I certainly appreciate it. If you are out there and this is news to you and you have uh, a similar inclination or tendency towards uh, masochism, you can email me at uh, letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com. Just put uh, transcription in the subject line so I know what it's about. Okay? Thank you, everybody. And now, uh, let's get on with the program. Elisa Gabbert was here. Her new essay collection is called The Word Pretty. It is available now from Black Ocean. It was so much fun having her here, and I am happy to get to share this conversation with you. Here she is, folks. This is Elisa Gabbert. It's not just that we don't have a TV. It's that I don't watch TV, like, on my computer or on my phone or whatever. It's not that I've never watched TV. I just... (laughs) You didn't, like, grow up, like, in a house without TV. No, 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 no. I mean, I've I've watched plenty of TV in my life. I know what what TV is like. (laughs) Um, But I don't like it. Like, I... I just don't feel like it's really good art ever. Whenever people are like, no, no, TV's really good now. I'm like, look, TV's always been, <laughs> there's always been entertaining TV. It's not that it's not entertaining. The problem is it's like too entertaining and I find it super addictive. And um, So maybe you like it too much. Well, no, it's like, it's like Halloween candy, you know? And there, I mean, I do think there's good Halloween candy as well, right. <laughs> but like, I just, I find it hard to stop and then I feel gross afterwards and it's just like never as interesting. Like I'm not thinking about it afterwards. I'm not, you know, like you're not I'm, as enriched, right? It doesn't enrich my life. What about and, cinema? Um, I like theoretically cinema. <laughs> they have a criterion. <laughs> they have the criterion channel now. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, I think most new movies are total garbage. And so I rarely see movies. Isn't that most weird? Like how, I mean, I used to go all the time. I think some yeah. of it is a function of like time in life and kids and just schedule, yeah. but I don't like, I'm not like sitting around going, God, I'm missing out. Like there's oh, not, God, no, you know, I, 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 I see like maybe two or three movies a year. Yeah. I used to be a movie person, but I feel like around like the late nineties, early 2000s like it's just been downhill since then <laughs> since they do, they're just like churning out one comic book movie after another one oh, and i hate them so one... it's that's so so boring to me i would i would rather do almost anything else i would rather watch tv <laughs> than, than watch a comic book movie oh yeah for sure i mean they can some of them can be good but it's just like it's just too much for me it's, it's just so so deeply not my thing all those kind of like universe like i'm not into star wars and but so many people are it's crazy to me I like know, this I just uh, don't get it it yeah. just doesn't it just doesn't do anything for me so you read so let's go through a day yeah. in the life of elisa gabbard all right because you work a day job too i do and I, so this is part of the reason I, I felt like i had to kind of change my life um so my day job is pretty demanding i work on east coast time so i usually get up and i'm working by seven and then i'm what are you in finance 
No. <laughs> you're a stockbroker? No, 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 no. Um, I'm a director of content and SEO uh, for a software company. So I do like content strategy. Um, I'd rather not talk about it. <laughs> not yeah. because it's like <laughs> I understand. confidential. It's just dull. Um, not, you know, not to me, but it would be dull to your listeners, I think. Um, so I do that until, you know, like 3.34 and then... Um, I'm usually pretty drained. And so if I can, I'll like go to the gym or go for a run or something. And that kind of like clears my head and then I'll make dinner. And then, you know, I have the rest of my night to do what I want with. And I really just try to spend it reading or doing other kind of literary pursuits because that's the time that I can do it. And then if I want to write, I really can only do it on the weekends because I need that like fresh morning brain. I can't, I just don't, I'm I was going to ask, I was going to ask. So, okay. But this kind of makes sense to me, like from an ecosystem perspective that you would be feeding your head Monday through Friday in the evenings, because it's just so evident from reading you, not only because you talk about it explicitly, but it just comes through that like you're reading in a serious way, widely, deeply you have for a long time. And I, you know, it, it always shows up in the work. Um, but now it makes sense like from the manufacturing standpoint that like, this is how it goes. You read all week, pack your head full of interesting ideas, and then you're chewing on it. I'm sure during the day and whatever, you know, driving to, or I guess you don't drive to work. I don't. Yeah. Good I walk, you. I walk from my bedroom to <laughs> my little office nook. <laughs> Not to be under a uh, value. <laughs> it's a very short commute. It's nice. Yeah. Especially like living in a big city. Um, yeah. but no, that makes sense to me that that's the way it would work. And it seems to be working for you. Like, do you yeah, like it that way? It's, it's, it's become a process that works for me. Yes. Um, so if I'm traveling a lot on the weekends, I, I start to get really, um, angsty, I guess about the fact that like, I haven't had a chance to write for a while. Um, so and I, I actually kind of miss that. I used to read more on the weekends because I didn't have as much writing to do. <laughs> so I'm at this place in my life now where I feel like my writing is taking away from my reading time. And I sort of resent that. <laughs> like yeah. I wish the balance was a little bit more reading. Cause I love like waking up early on a Saturday and just reading until noon, like oh. on the couch. You, you, you don't I don't kids. have kids. So <laughs> yeah, you're like, what? Like, kind of alternate universe. <laughs> I know. Is this? Yeah. It's, that's the dream. I mean, there was a time in my life where I guess I just assumed I would have kids. Um, but my husband never wanted kids and enough time went by that I realized like, oh, that's fine. I have all this other fulfilling stuff. Well, and people, you know, I mean, I don't, it's not a one for one equation, but like, I mean, books, the work that you do, like can be deeply meaningful in a kind of similar way or something. These projects that you mm -hmm. invest so much of yourself in. And I mean, it's a tired it's a tired comparison, but you birth a book. It takes a while to incubate. It takes, you know, I can see how, um, you know, if like you have that at the center of your life, it can be super enriching and enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds lovely <laughs> to read until noon on a Saturday. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, um, I'm curious to know, like, how many books a week do you read? Oh, God. not So, I'm not a fast reader, is the thing. Um, so, I try to read, like, a book a week, and there, there may be weeks where I read more than that if they're really short books. Um, but I usually, by the end of the year, I have not read a book a week because... I travel a lot and um, I just get behind. So For work? Yeah, kind of half and half work and just random things, like things that come up. Like this coming, trip, to, coming to Los Angeles. Yeah, I'm here in LA just for the weekend. Um, or seeing family, um, my family and my husband's family. They're both kind of far from us. Where, where are you from again? I'm from El Paso, Texas. Okay, that's right. I remember we had a conversation about the Asarco Tower. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, I've been racing this week, so I didn't have time to like re-listen. I, and to be honest, like if I interview somebody like a second or third time, it's just so hard for me to go back and listen to myself. Oh, I hate listening to myself. And I don't know. I keep it being, I keep agreeing to be on podcasts and then I, <laughs> and then I listen to myself and I'm like, why do I do this? Hey, it's listen, I've, I'm on like almost 600 of these. So you're, I've got your beat. <laughs> but you're, I mean, you do this because you're a good conversationalist. I don't know. I just feel like I'm such a better writer than I am talker. And so when I hear myself, I just think it's like so inarticulate compared to if I had a chance to think about it. You have to be willing it. to be willing. You have to be willing to accept like gross imperfection. Yes. To put yourself on tape in conversation. It's just messy. It's a much messier process. Oh yeah. I have to hear myself giggling. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. <laughs> well, um, a book a week. I know recently you've been like, you've been reading, what was it? Like Mary Shelley or yeah, old like classic I'm reading books. a bunch of classics that I missed because I either, you know, didn't get to them in high school or I wasn't an English major. So I took maybe like two English classes, I think, in college. So, and they were 20th century. So yeah, there's just a ton of classics I never read. And all of a sudden I really felt like I want to, I want that in my life. <laughs> I want to know what those books are actually like instead of just assuming. Um, and it's been really fun. I've been writing a little column about them and I'm in this book club where we read, we call it the stupid classics book club. So we're specifically reading kind of like short, not, you know, not like Bleak House, although actually we all want to read Bleak House, but stuff like Frankenstein. Um, and it's good. Like you can get through it. Cause like I find yes. sometimes I'll be like, man, I really should have read this. And then I pick it up and I start reading it and I'm like, I don't want to read this. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like it's better than I thought it would be. And, and specifically weirder, like always weirder than I thought it would be, which I love. Um, Frankenstein is really weird and just nothing like what I expected at all. Like not the cartoon, like the TV. Yeah, exactly. Know. And I never even, I've never even seen like a whole Frankenstein movie. Um, I I but I just any. had these kinds of assumptions that I don't know where they came from about it that were not true at all. And so you do the reading, you're trying to read a book a week, you know, maybe an hour or two at night, probably mm -hmm. right. Of deep reading. Yeah, I try. Um, I mean, like I said, it's, I'm, it sounds much more <laughs> disciplined than it really is. <laughs> like, yeah, right. I mean, I'm tired and distracted and I look at my phone and 
have Good. a glass of wine. And like, I, I don't like, I don't read as much as I could if I was like really disciplined, but I read a lot more than I would if I was like, well, it's nighttime now I'm going to watch TV. So like watching Netflix like me right. or yeah. cable news like me. <laughs> um, Oh God. Yeah. Never, never the news. Um, but I do, I go to the library a lot. And so that helps because often the books are due back and my library actually just, um, got rid of fines. So even if I turned in my books late, I wouldn't have to pay anything, but I'm just such like a goody goody. I can't bear to turn in a book <laughs> after it's due. Wait, wait. <laughs> so why, if they have no fine, like what's their enforcement mechanism? Just like, I have no idea. I don't, I don't know. I wonder about that all the time. Like, I wonder if people who go to the library are like me and they just, they want to take the books back. Is the library crowded? Like, Like, do a lot of people go to the, like, which library do you go to? Do you mind saying? I go to the the central branch in Denver. So it's like the main branch. Um, Sometimes I've, I've shown up like right before it opened and there's just, yeah, people like milling around crowded outside, Um, which I just read that. uh, I didn't read the whole thing, but I started that Susan Orlean book about the, la library yeah, fire yeah yeah and there's a part about that like if you show up before it opens there's just tons of people waiting to go in and so the denver library is like that too and i think a lot of them are homeless or whatever and they're just like yeah i want to be in a place and this is a place i can be um but once you get inside it doesn't seem crowded it's a big building there's multiple floors if you go up to like the floor where all the computers and everything are just a ton of people in there well but, you know and it just uh, but it, it strikes me it's like one of these last bastions of taxpayer supported like goodness yeah i love it like like, i feel like libraries are so uh inoffensive in every way they're so good (laughs) right and yet (laughs) some people want to disrupt them yeah it's like (laughs) dismantle the library it just seems like such a um awesome like civic institution and something well worth supporting yeah they're perfect i mean the only like the only annoying thing is that sometimes i have to wait many weeks for a book if it's like just came out it's a bestseller and everybody wants it um but i'll do it anyway because often by the time it comes around i realize like oh i didn't really want to read that anyway there's always plenty to read anyway yeah yeah i don't understand those lists of books like oh most anticipated i can't wait and i mean if somebody tells me like i can't wait for your next book (laughs) amazing i love that (laughs) i'm glad to hear it but i don't think that way at all i'm like what i can wait (laughs) there's just so many other books there's plenty um (laughs) So you go to the library on Saturdays to write? Is that what no, it is? No, 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 no. You write I, at home? I write at home. Okay. Yeah. So when do you go to the library? Just like sporadically? Oh, just, yeah, just whenever. Every now and then if I want to take like a long walk and the weather's nice, it's like a two mile walk from where we live to our library. So I'll walk down there. Oh, okay. See, I had it in back. my head that you were composing in the library, like as a way to like oh, no. surround yourself. But that's just where you go get books. Yeah. It's just where I get books. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I always work like my day job or whatever. I work from home and then I go to a different area of my apartment when I'm doing other stuff just to have like a little bit of separation, but I'm very distractible. So it's very hard for me to read in public. Like if there's any background music or people talking, like just having two streams of like the words in my head that I'm trying to think or read and then other people or song lyrics or whatever. Um, they just, completely disrupt each other and that makes me feel good because i feel like for some reason you know uh because you're such a good thinker on the page i'm like wow this is a person who is just so focused or but you struggle with your phone and distraction just like anybody yeah absolutely so i just have to strategize around it so sometimes you go to the library but you can still get on your phone in the library can't you 
Well, the reception's pretty bad oh, in oh, our good. library. Good. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, but yeah, I mostly just go and get books and then leave and take them home. And yeah, I'm kind of a homebody, I guess. And then, um, it's like poetry versus essays. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I guess there's some argument about like an earlier book of yours being potent, you know, I guess technically essay ish, like the but very, very different than like the essays I'm writing right now. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the two and, you know, I don't know if it was so much a decision more than it was like a realization like that. Oh my God, I'm an essayist. I'm a poet slash essayist. I'm a hyphenate. <laughs> like, how did you come to that? And, yeah. and, um, what has been, you know, the experience of working in this vein? Yeah. I, I mean, I was always writing prose the whole time I was writing poetry, just cause that's sort of the default mode of communication. So, you know, I used to have a blog and I was writing a lot of my blog and, you know, I'd occasionally write reviews, criticism, whatever. Um, and, you know, every now and then people would ask me to write something and it's just, you know, the more I did it, the more that happened. And, um, I just started kind of turning more of my attention that way, partly because I find it a lot easier. Actually, it's easier for me to produce prose than poetry. Really? Yeah. Like, is it faster? Yes, much. Um, and just like, I can, if I make time to write and I've been, you know, doing that work, like we said, reading and thinking and doing stuff with my time, like I can always find something to write about and I'm always sort of making notes and jotting down ideas that I think might turn into something. And once enough time goes by, like I can go to my notes and like, I can just always turn it into something. Okay. So that's what I forgot to ask you as we were talking about your like schedule and your reading habits and everything is, are you reading with a highlighter? (laughs) Not a highlighter. Um, but always, yeah, a pencil or pen or a little, like if, I mean, if we own the book, I'll, I'll write and jog ear in our books and stuff. Um, but I always have like either a notebook or like a piece of paper tucked in the back of a book so I can make notes on that. Are those little kind of sticky tabs? Um, I have this one kind of sticky tab that my husband discovered and started giving them to me for Christmas and stuff. And they're the best. They're like, these perfect little colored strips. So when you put them in the book, it looks like the line is highlighted because they're slightly translucent. So you can see through them, but then you can, you know, take them out and reuse them. It's the best. I wish remind me later and I'll show you. (laughs) I have some in my bag. (laughs) She's Um, she's packing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, I I just, I mark up my books a lot so I can go back and look at them. And do you um, transfer your notes to like digital then, or do you just keep it all on paper? So if like, if I know for sure I'm going to write about something, yes. And sometimes if I'm taking like a ton of notes and doing a ton of reading for kind of like a long form piece, I'll just read with my laptop open and like a notes document and I'll just, you know, type quotes and thoughts directly um, rather than, you know, writing on a paper than having to type it up later. It just saves me time. Um, I wish I had a secretary. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, just like, like an assistant, I could be like, yeah, like type Henry this up. James. Yes, yes. Yeah. Because um, that's a lot of work. Like, you know, it's hard enough to find the time to do deep reading, but then to actually like sit there and transfer notes to a digital file. And- but it helps so much in terms of making me remember what I read or the important parts. Right. Um, and you like, you, you think about it again. Typing almost. it out. Yes. And so, and just marking things and going back to look at them because I find often I'll finish reading a book and I know I liked it, but I can't particularly remember which parts are why (laughs) unless I go back and look at the things that struck me and I'm like, Oh yeah, that part, that was great. And then I'll start to see connections. Like I just read a very short book. Um, and I got to the end and there was this line that struck me and I was like, Oh, 
wait, was that because it was a book with an introduction? And I was like, was that line quoted in the introduction? But then I went back and looked and it had appeared twice in, it might've been in the introduction too, but it was twice in, it was this book of lectures on Proust. Um, Light reading. Just yeah, <laughs> actually just this, uh, this guy, Joseph Chapsky, I think is how his name is pronounced. So he delivered this lecture on Proust when he was in a Soviet prison camp in the forties. Um, all the officers, the Polish officers were just kind of delivering lectures to each other about what they knew and what they remembered because they were kind of trying to keep their minds, um, like sane, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Um, you know, they didn't have books or anything. And so he just delivered this lecture on everything he knew about Proust and about um, remembrance of things past from memory, or I guess I should say in search of lost time. Um, I'm trying to think of what I would do if I were in a prison camp. I guess I would just like talk about podcasting or uh, <laughs> yeah, everything you've learned, <laughs> how to work a soundboard. Wait. Yeah. Which I have minimal understanding of, but well, it was a really beautiful book, but so it was, there were a couple of times where he used like this exact same phrase multiple times. And, um, for, and, and in one instance, I think he was talking about himself and another, he was talking about Proust and I don't know, it was just really poignant, but I wouldn't have remembered unless I had, you know, gone back and noticed that I've like flagged that line twice. So what about like, you know, I, you're reading, you're getting ideas, your mind is live and sort of activated and at what point do you transition from like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, I'm fascinated. Oh, I'm taking down all these notes to like, oh, I think I have an essay to write about this. Like, like I'm imagining that you get to some point where you have a question that's bothering you mm-hmm. or some point of disagreement with like prevailing wisdom or like, can you talk about how you start to see your own work in the yeah. work that you're reading? Yeah. Um, so usually it has to be like there have to be two to three kind of related ideas. So I start to see this kind of interlocking structure. Um, and if it's a longer essay, it would be more than, it would have to be more than three. But if I have like three ideas that I find interesting that are sort of overlapping, um, then I, I will see like, oh, that could be a three-part structure. I mean, I, I like essays that sort of start in one place and then end up somewhere else. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot because yeah. I know... Um you know, it's annoying, <laughs> but it, is there any chance you could recall a, a, such an instance, you know, like uh-huh. of three ideas that it would interlock? Can you give an example? Well, I can think of, um, let's see, I'm trying to decide if it would be better to talk about something I'm haven't yet written or something I recently wrote. Um, well, so I'm writing this column on classics and, um, I started reading Swan's way I just kind of picked it. I was trying to find something on our shelves that to read. And I was like, Oh, well, you know, I've, I've never read Proust. <laughs> I still have and, yeah. And, but I was, I, I kind of didn't expect to get into it because I don't know, it's really long. And I just it has the, the aura of difficulty about it. <laughs> and it was night and I was tired and I was like, I'm not going to get into Proust tonight, but <laughs> what the heck? Right. I open it and I read the first line and I was like, Ooh, wait, that's good. <laughs> and I read the first paragraph and I was like, Holy shit. Nobody told me <laughs> Proust is great. <laughs> right. Um, that first paragraph was a little deceiving though. It gets, it gets more difficult. And, and then I, I read later, I, you know, I, I got this book, so I actually, the next time I went to the library, I happened to see this book called Lost Time, which is this lecture on Proust, and I picked it up. The Polish prisoner? Yes. Okay. Um, 
because I was like, oh, maybe I'll write about Proust for my next classics column and like this would be relevant because I'm always trying to kind of find supplementary material because if I just read, you know, like the one book that's like, that's, that's not giving me enough. I need some, some contacts and padding. Um, so I read that and that kind of blew my mind. I actually sort of stopped reading Proust because I was just so into that. <laughs> so, and um, what I found really fascinating about it was that, you know, he's writing, well, sorry, he's delivering this lecture. He didn't actually write it. I don't think he just delivered it and then somebody transcribed it. Um, but he delivered this lecture about Proust, this book that's about memory and he was doing it from memory and he couldn't, you know, check any of his sources or his quotations because he's in a prison camp. So, right. <laughs> um, there's so, no public library yeah, as it turns out. Right. And, but so I, I found in the, um, in the introduction to the lecture, which was written by the translator, um, that he had said, you know, somewhere else in his diary or something that it was a really happy, like actually joyful time for him. Like, making notes for the lecture and the book includes these um, photographs of these like elaborate notes documents that he did when he was kind of designing the lectures. And they're so beautiful. They look like, they just, they look like art. Um, and so, and the translator actually translated the diagrams too, because they're written in Polish and he translated them like into English, but in drawing. So you can see side by side exactly what it looks like, but you can actually read them. And those are super beautiful, but he talked about how that time was actually happy for him. And so that made me think of um, this memoir by Natalia Ginsburg called Family Lexicon. And it takes place during World War II. And there's a lot in that book about um, people feeling oddly happy during the war. Like, like later, they remember the war fondly. <laughs> I, I can understand that in a weird yeah, way because yeah. it, it has a clarifying effect. Right. You know, and it's like all of a sudden, you know, exactly what's important. Yes. Stakes are high. Like your mind is completely alive. And so, yeah. So like the, the connecting, the connecting thing there to me is like sort of the joy and suffering. And that's, so the overture in Swan's way, there's a lot of that in there too, where He's remembering the narrator who's, you know, maybe a stand-in for Proust probably, um, is remembering as a child, like how it was very hard for him to go to sleep until his mother came up and gave him a kiss goodnight. And, you know, it's just, it's rendered in just so much rich, rich, rich detail. And, um, he's talking about how terrible it was for him at the time, this, this degree of suffering that he felt and how um, he was just so miserable and the time seemed to pass so slowly. And it was like, he would die if his mother didn't come up and sometimes she didn't because she was entertaining. And so he's, he's talking about a very painful memory, but there's this kind of joy inside it. Like just in remembering the pain, that's a kind of happiness. And so connecting different texts or things in my own life, like how I think my own past pain is, like very precious to me. <laughs> yeah. We, are, I just, we, we get attached to our suffering in a way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there's, there's also this thing where it's like, it's nice to reflect on past suffering because you're no longer in it. Right. So it's like, Oh, like I, I made it through. There's yeah. some sort of like good there's feeling. A pride. Right. Almost. I don't, I feel very like protective of my painful memories. Like they, they do feel in a way like my best memories. Hmm. Yeah. I, I guess I'm kind of the same way. Like they definitely are sticky. Mm -hmm. They keep coming up. And then when it comes to writing, it's a strong tendency to want to go there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I have that kind of nostalgia for my past pain. 
Like, do I have this one kind of... Do you of, have a greatest hits? Like, what, give, me, give me one of your best ones. <laughs> I don't know. I, ha- I have this, like, this sort of image in my mind where I remember once... Oh, God, it's funny, actually. What I remember is not the painful time, but a memory of the painful time. So um, right around the time that I graduated um, from graduate school, I went through, like, a painful breakup. And it was, like, a cold, rainy spring because I was in Boston. And... um I remember like a year or so later being in a different bedroom because I'd moved, but it was, again, it was like late spring, cold, rainy, and, you know, maybe the windows were open and I was lying in bed and just the quality of the weather and like that kind of dampness in the air, like it just reminded me so strongly of the pain I had been in a year before. And now I think very fondly of that moment in that second bedroom of remembering the pain like, I don't really remember <laughs> the original right. experience so much. I remember the memory of it. Um, and whenever the air and the weather is like that, like it's like a quality of the light too, that kind of like blue gray, yeah, <laughs> like breeze through the curtains. Um, yeah. I just think of that as like remembering that memory of pain makes me happy in a weird way. Like it's kind of soothing to me. I love the way, see, this is why I think uh, your work is resonating. Cause like even in conversation and I'm hearing you talk about, um, you know, putting together this essay and having these like seemingly somewhat disparate ideas and, but figuring out how they coalesce, but then also listening to you talk about how you're like working through your own memories and your own experience of pain. The word that's occurring to me is, um, mistrust in a healthy sense, because it's so easy to sort of like be letting your, your thinking mind, you know, jabber at you and just to take it at face value and run with it. But I feel like so much of what you're doing, uh, in your work is, is like checking yourself a little bit and like really testing your thinking Mm -hmm. and moving laterally. Like one of the things you said about reading Proust and then having a text that you're really immersed in, but then immediately or not immediately, but soon after wanting to move laterally and read a book that speaks to that work so that you can get like a more prismatic understanding of not only the work, but probably your response to it Mm -hmm. like that. I resonate with that because I have, I, I feel like if I read somebody and I really like them, I'm always like, is there a literary biography I can read mm-hmm. so that I can start to decode this or, you know, I'm always hungry for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that, that is what you're doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, something that I like, this is like a move. I feel like I do in a lot of my essays, I, I sort of like to record my own, um, mistakes, I guess, mistakes and thinking like, oh, I thought it was going to be like this, but it wasn't like that. And I like to just show that really explicitly. Um, or, I, you know, I made this assumption or, but then I did that. And I, I try to kind of record the whole process of the thinking alongside the thinking, um, which to me is a way of sort of, I don't know, just staying authentic to how it actually occurred, like right, this, right. then this, then that. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. I like that kind of meandering path in an essay. There's a line in the book and I, I, I'm paraphrasing it. I can't remember it verbatim, but it's about memoir and how a lot of memoir, um, in this like, or auto fiction, like presents a reality or a perception of reality as like finite and resolved. Mm-hmm. Am I getting at it? Yeah. It's, it's that, um, there's this kind of pose of my current self looking back on my past self and saying these were, you know, the mistakes I made or whatever, and this is what I've learned. And, but there's this kind of false, uh, to me, it usually reads as like false wisdom. Um, 
where it's like, but now I got it. But, that's, <laughs> I'm like, but you're wrong now too. Like if we could, <laughs> if we could fast forward five years, no. you'd be doing that again. Like you're still wrong. <laughs> I found, I found it comforting. Like not only as a reader, but as a writer, because as a writer who's been trying to write some kind of mm-hmm. memoir forever, because I feel like there is this, I mean, market demand might, I don't know, maybe that's the way to put it, but it does seem like in the memoir genre in particular, there's this sort of expectation that you're going to have a hero narrative, usually with some kind of victimhood tied in, Mm -hmm. and there's going to be a lesson learned. Yeah. And there's, it's like this wise perspective reflection, but like, I'm like, that's not how I feel. Yeah. Like, A, I don't feel wise, but like, I also don't feel like resolved. And it's like, does, do people really get to a place where they like, I learned something? <laughs> so it, my, my husband is trying to write a memoir. Well, I mean, he's, he's writing a memoir. Um, he's written a draft, but he's kind of in revision stage right now. But he feels that pressure really strongly to like, to create that kind of arc where there's something triumphant and inspirational at the end. And he hates that. And for the longest time, he was like, I'm not going to do that. That's a that's a deal breaker, but I think he's starting to <laughs> I worry a little bit because I really want him to have that conviction. I think he's starting to break a little bit and feel like I have to do this. This is the only way it's going to get published because we do this thing. We just did it last night. We were in a bookstore and we wander around the memoir section and just look at like the last paragraph of a memoir and that you can tell just from that, like that they all have that kind of uplifting lilt you got to tie it up which i mean you know i'm sure it feels different when you read the whole book but if you just look at the end it seems so false and like why do they all have to end on that note yeah i just i resist it you should maybe maybe that's the thing i'll try to write against that well i feel like i can i can escape it by doing essays and so i mean my essays are really not memoir like i don't think no but they're like they're, like they're hybrid in some way and i think that you're right like it's a great like i keep thinking like um prismatic lateral movement like that's what you're doing you mm-hmm. know it's like it's like a feint or a like a duck and then uh pivot um but yet not in a way that's unrelated to what you're talking about mm-hmm. like, i mean it wouldn't work if you were just <laughs> like, <something laughs> like, completely changing the subject but there's some truth to that i think as a reader, I always appreciate it when the writer is doing such great deep thinking for me and like taking me on that kind of ride, um, you know, if they've got the skill to do it. Yeah. My favorite compliment that I got um, from people who like the word pretty is like, oh, after I read it, I felt like I started thinking like you, um, which I love. I love <laughs> <laughs> for those of you listening, just so you know what to say to Elisa. When you read it. <laughs> um, so... Structure, um, because I think this is another way that you're really gifted as a thinker and as a writer, and it's something that I think eludes a lot of us, especially on the literary side, maybe, um, because it's not necessarily plot structure that you're talking about. It's like more of a, um, I don't know, intellectual content structure, and like how do these different pieces fit together, and mm-hmm. like how do these things overlap, and then potentially. Uh, like come together or not or whatever. But I'd love to hear you talk about how, you know, you're figuring out what you want to write about by finding these disparate ideas, but then also figuring out like the structure, which I think if I've uh, read interviews with you correctly, sort of precedes the actual composition. Like you have to sort of have the structure in your head yes. before you can get down to business. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I lo- I'm really interested in structure and I don't know that I have a great vocabulary 
to talk about it. I wish I did. I should probably write an essay about structure because then I would. <laughs> if you could have that have done, to... if you could have that done by the time this episode. <laughs> I'd appreciate it. Um, I mean, it's it's just it's really true for me that writing makes me smarter. I'm my I'm doing my best thinking while I'm writing. So if I want to figure something out, I have to write about it. Um, but yeah, I when I'm. I always start by taking a lot of notes and um, taking notes starts to make the ideas visual in a way because I just, I see the page where I typed it out. And when I know that I want something to be in the piece, like I'll, I'll highlight it and add a bunch of asterisks or make a bold, whatever, make it <laughs> big type. So then, because sometimes I'll have like, 25, 50 pages just of notes. And then I have to figure out how am I going to turn this into an essay? Um, but I'm sort of thinking of a number of points, like in a constellation, like if it's a shorter essay, okay, I've got these three points. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be in three sections, so it could, but it's almost like these invisible sections where I know there's, there's going to be a beginning part of the essay that hovers around this one point. Um, and, and when you say point, it's like an idea. Is it a, yeah, yeah, it's an idea that's complex enough that I know, like I can talk about that for like four or five paragraphs and I'm going to have interesting things to say. And I feel like I really like essays that are very dense. Like there's something interesting in every paragraph, if not in every sentence, I don't like a lot of filler. You know what I was thinking? And I don't mean to interrupt, but, yeah. um, so much literary nonfiction is bloated. Mm -hmm. Like there's this, have you heard of this company called Blinkist? No, there's, it's a German company, but they're basically setting out to take books and to winnow them down into audiobooks and like basically cliff's notes. Yeah. If you can remember cliff's notes, of course, but they're doing it in audiobook format where it's like, we'll save you the time. Like we're going <laughs> to take this book and you can listen to the whole thing in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. and you're not going to miss much. Yeah. And you know, there's a, the purest in me sort of bristles. Yeah. Um, but then there's also like the poet side of me. that's like, I admire the compression. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like books with a lot of kind of airy filler are faster to read. So you just fly through them because there's not a lot of complex information that you need to process. So whenever I read a book really fast, I feel kind of cheap afterwards. Like I feel like people usually use it as a compliment, you know, Oh, I read your book in one sitting and I, you know, whatever, that's fine. I don't, I don't mind when people tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if I read a book in one sitting, I always feel like that's kind of a point against the book because if I find it really rich and complex and interesting, then I'm constantly stopping to go back or make notes and it takes me much longer to read. So yeah, I don't feel like that fly through ability quality is really a positive point for a book, but just to like, just to refine this point a little bit, it's like, you're not saying that you want the reader to struggle to read it. You want the reader to be so stimulated that they think while they're reading it and yeah. maybe write things down. Yeah. Because like, I feel like, you know, easy reading is hard writing. You mm -hmm. want it to go down easy on a line by line basis. You don't want people to sit there and like have to look up words. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless it's really necessary mm -hmm. to include a word that's most people won't have context for, but like that can get annoying after a while. Yeah. Like, we get it, dude. You know, you, you have a thesaurus, <laughs> right? Know? But I think that there is that, um, that sort of middle ground like that you're talking about where, um, you know, it does go down easy, but it's, it's got so much in, 
uh, in it that, you know, it kind of enforces a sort of slowness Mm -hmm. and it makes you think. Well, coming back to the structure thing, because I was just thinking about it more. Yeah, please. (laughs) So, you know, in like a map app where there's like a point and then kind of like a fuzzy radius around it, um, that's how I start to see the essay. So however many kind of main points, those are like the points on the map. So say there's three, say there's five. Um, Then I start to see, you know, the kind of paragraphs around that point as that kind of fuzzy radius. And I think of the structure as like an arrangement of overlapping radii. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it's like those circles will connect enough that I can see how to get from point A to point B to point C to point D. Like a Venn diagram almost? Yeah. Yeah. and so it's like I come up with those sort of areas that are overlapping, and then it's a question of deciding what comes first and what comes last. Um, and usually I know I'm ready to start writing when I know where I want to start and I can see where I want to go next. And if I just get that far, then I can get through the rest of the essay because as I write, it will become clear to me. But how long does it take you to write an essay? I know it probably, and, and also, um, before we get to that, in terms of structure, you said you have like a limited vocabulary for it. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine part of that is because everyone's different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's probably some crossover, but each essay is its own beast. Mm-hmm. They're not, and unless I'm wrong, I mean, there are lots of them. I think so. Um, I'm, yeah, but it's always, it's always somehow visual. It's interesting. I mean, I guess structure is a visual metaphor, but yeah. Okay. Um, so how long does it take you? So I need a lot of processing time, um, especially for like a really long, complex essay. But And that is usually weeks. Could be months, but usually weeks if I'm you know being disciplined and focused on it and really just making sure all my reading is kind of related. Although whenever I'm working on an essay, everything I read feels related. Right. <laughs> There's lots of serendipity. I think if yeah. you're like locked in, in like a deep, deep think, like yeah. you keep seeing it everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. But once I'm ready to write, I can write sometimes, you know, 5,000 words a day, um, which is an essay. Um, a good day for me is like, yeah, 2,500 to 5,000. If I write 5,000 words in a day, I'll be really exhausted. So I can't, I can't do that regularly, but I I had to do it a few times when I was trying to make my last, my book deadline. Um, but yeah, so I, I just have to think and take notes for a long time. And then if I have like a day free or I'm alone and I can just work and that's the best, like just being completely focused and, um, I can write really pretty fast. It sounds like the prep is the hard part. Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah. It's the, it's the thinking and a lot of the thinking is unconscious. I think okay. that's how it feels to me. <laughs> I was going to say, cause like, you know, I, somebody who is as big of a thinker on the page as you are uh, and as good of a thinker on the page, like I'm, I'm like, what is Elisa like? Like when she's grocery shopping, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, are you always on? Like, are you constantly thinking, but that, you know, there's intensive thinking. And then, like you say, you sort of let it go into your subconscious and your brain sort of, and that's not, that's not a, uh, that has value. Mm-hmm. Like the brain does. I think that subconscious mind, especially when you've packed it full of, you know, good ideas and deep thinking mm-hmm. that's more conscious, you know, like yeah. you let it go to work. You dream, even sleeping on it is good. Right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, one thing that my brain does a lot, it's, it's, and it's not something that I control. It just happens automatically. I'm always like imagining the future. So if I was grocery shopping, I'd just probably be thinking about like, what am I going to make for dinner? And I'll just, 
I'll literally like imagine, you know, I'll picture myself like in my kitchen <laughs> making the dinner. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, she's right now imagining leaving my garage. <laughs> well, I realized, yeah, like when I got here, I had some kind of image in my head of like I pictured I pictured more of a like a regular garage, like it, that was the old garage. The old garage yeah. had like oh, okay. wasps and asbestos, and oh all, yeah, that's more what I was picturing. Like you yeah. know those oil stains. On yeah, the- <laughs> we had all that <laughs> yeah. in in the past iteration of the podcast. Um, yeah, this is much cleaner and nicer <laughs> than I was picturing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought there would actually be a garage door uh, right. that was open, you know, and like a dog barking outside. <laughs> yeah, no, this is the uh, this is the deluxe version. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so you said like 5,000 words in a day when you're really cranking or you're on some kind of crazy deadline. Mm-hmm. But the like the rumination, research, note-taking, pondering consciously and subconsciously, that can go on for weeks, months. Yeah, I, like, ideally, I try to set up my life so I don't have to write more than once a month because the processing time, as just established, is like really the most important part. Like one day a month? Well, um, no, I might, I mean, I'll spend like a couple of more days, you know, refining, adding, editing and stuff like that. But I try not to have like more than one thing due a month. Uh Um, I mean, most of the time I'm writing to a deadline rather than just because I feel like it. That makes sense though. Like it makes sense, especially specifically with your work. But like I've, you know, I've read about or talked to people who, work that like, you know, that's sort of like austere, get up in the morning at dawn. And, um, what was it like Matt Bell, who's been on the show, he was tweeting the other day. He's like reflecting back on the writing of his novel. And he's like, I would wake up at dawn and eat like a fistful of hard boiled eggs and go. To the- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, somewhat, he was somewhat tongue in cheek, but he was also to circle back. He, I think yeah. he was, um, it was one of those things where he was like reflecting on past pain with nostalgia. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cause it was hard. Right. He's not doing that anymore, but he's like, wow, I got a lot of work done. Yeah. And so it's like, sort of like, wow, that was kind of a joyless slog and really painful. And I was getting up before dawn and all this stuff, but like, wow, I'm, I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there are people, a lot of writers who sort of have to be in it every day to get stuff done. And then there are writers who work in little pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it sounds to me like you're this, you, you load up mm-hmm. and I get it all and spring then, loaded and then just like it comes out in a burst. Yeah. So it's very irritating. I think I mentioned this earlier, but it's irritating to me sometimes when I, I know I'm ready to write, but I just can't find the time. Um, there was a period about a month ago where I was traveling like three weekends in a row, which is just, it's too much for me. I'm too old. I get really exhausted because I can't sleep very well when I travel. But, you know, weekends are when I write. So I wasn't able to. And it was very irritating to me because I was like, I'm ready. Like, I'm <laughs> ready to write Is this it, thing. I want to sit down and write it. But it's all like, it's all basically already in my mind. You know what I mean? Like, I've done all the thinking. It's there and I have to type it. <laughs> Is there something like physiological, like external that we can uh, all be aware of that? Like when Elisa's ready to write, you start to, <laughs> you start to twitch. <laughs> Is there some sort of signal you give? Because I, can... I mean, yeah, I'm probably a little irritable. Just cause I'm very preoccupied. Um, like cause the sentences are coming to me, and you know, like when I'm falling asleep, or I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be thinking about it. And do you ever like talk into your phone or anything like that? Do you take notes into your phone? Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. Yeah. I tr- but then I usually it's saying it that makes me remember it. So. 
I rarely go back and actually listen to those. I'll remember it if I say it. And it used to be that like when I wrote more poetry, often poems would come to me while I was writing or something. And so I just have to repeat it to myself because I didn't have anything on me to record it with. Um, I would just repeat it to myself the whole time in my head until I got home so I could write it down. Are you a re- like a regular runner? Um, like in the Denver way? <laughs> <laughs> Training at altitude? Uh, uh, no, not not really. I I mean, I've I jog and I, I don't jog very fast or for very long, but I've been doing it since I was a kid. Like um, on a ritual? I mean, like, is that how you sort of like, cause you said you clear your head at like that after work, yeah. like that interstitial period. I've been in the habit more of going to the gym than running outside lately, just because they built like a brand, a nice brand new gym, two blocks from my apartment. And, oh. and it's always snowing randomly in Denver in the spring. So yeah. I, I usually go to the gym instead, okay. but, um, but there's something different. Like, yeah, when I go to the gym, I end up actually, one exception, <laughs> watching TV. Uh, <laughs> like while I'm on the cardio yeah, yeah, machine. Yeah. I, I basically always watch Food Network, though. It's like, the yeah. It's okay. That's yeah. it. <laughs> I watch PBS at I watch at the Chopped gym. <laughs> while it's like counterproductive, <laughs> getting really hungry. Just thinking about going um, to the grocery store yeah. to get my food for dinner. But it's not, yeah, it's not as, as nice, really, I guess, as when you run outside and it makes you think, um, yeah. watching food network does not make me think. The reason I ask, I think there's a, you know, I've talked to a lot of writers on the show who are regular runners, mm-hmm. not all, not all, but it's not uncommon, mm-hmm. you know, to have that be like a part of some creative ritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's something weird about moving and it's not, it's not just running or walking. I notice that when I'm, I'm really writing and I like have a hard problem that I'm trying to solve, like. I can't quite get the sentence out or I'm not quite sure what the idea is or how to say it. What's the next thing that I'm going to do. Um, I'll just like get up and start pacing and it's, it doesn't feel like I decided to do it at all. It feels like I have no free will. I just stood up and then I'm like, why am I, I was just in the middle of typing a sentence. (laughs) Why am I walking around my apartment? Right. It's just, it's totally unconscious. Like my brain is forcing me to stand up and walk around a little bit like because i somehow i'm going to be thinking better i have that i got them like my feet i've got to move my yeah. feet like i'm not a runner but like i'm a walker mm-hmm. like to an unusual degree i'm i'm getting a little bit more into walking lately less running like i'll go on a longer walk than i would if i was running i'll like you know run for two miles and i'm sick of it already right um but i can go on like a five mile walk and yeah like I'm, I'm into city. Like I always call them city hikes. Yeah. Where like I'll just go wander the city for like two hours. Yeah. If I can. Yeah. And just like check out weird streets. Cause like there's so much to explore here. Like I haven't seen half the city. Absolutely. I mean, not, I haven't seen a fraction of it and I've been here almost 20 years. Yeah. Coming here in the car, it was just like, there were so many turns. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, Where the hell am I? Yeah. <laughs> I just had to have trust. I right. was eventually going to end up here. <laughs> and look at you now. Um, so what about revision? Like, because mm-hmm. you do so much prep work, I'm going to guess that you don't have to do a ton of revision. That's true. Okay. So like once you get to drafting, it's like you, you do it, you get it out, you refine it, you hand it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, most of the time I don't have to do very heavy edits after that. Um, it's, you know, 90% plus of the way there most of the time. Um, and if I was working with an editor who didn't think it was that close, I, I'm often like, well, this is not the editor for me <laughs> yeah. because, you know, 
if it's like, oh, cut all these digressions, I'm like, but that's <laughs> that's like, my that's, brand. That's that true. is my brand. <laughs> that if you if you don't like my digressions, you don't really like my writing. Yeah, <laughs> that's my feeling. Well, you know, and it's making me think too because I think the natural impulse for people who are writing and wanting to publish, whether it's online or in some like journal or in a book, is there's always this like impulse to like rush to the page mm-hmm. and then to rush to publication. But I'm recalling as I talk to you and listening to the way that you do your work, a conversation that I had with Roxane Gay, where mm-hmm. she was telling me um, about how much mental planning she does before she writes an essay. And it makes sense. Like a, a ruminative, meditative, um, product of deep reading, digressive form you know, you would probably be wise to do a lot of thought work and planning and note-taking and diagramming before you dive into drafting. Mm-hmm. But I think for so many people, it's like, well, I'll just start and figure it out. And maybe that works for some people. I think that would work better for fiction, like, because you already have so much structure and you're like, well, I know what the next scene is going to be or whatever. And like, you can get it out in crappy writing and fix the writing later. But with an essay you really can't, you can't like just insert thinking. If it's crappy thinking, you're not moving the essay forward at all. So yeah, it really feels like a pure waste of time to me to make myself write if I'm not ready to write. And I mean, sometimes I have to do that when like I'm doing edits or whatever. And an editor has asked me for a little more something, something here. And often when I'm in a place like that, I find that I just repeat myself like I'll, I'll think I'm having a fresh idea and then I read through the thing again and I realize like, oh, I just <laughs> wrote almost the exact same sentence verbatim that's, that's like already feel, later in the essay. That's how I feel when I listen to myself monologue on <laughs> <in> this show. <laughs> yeah. um, so do you, and I'm going backwards a little bit, but I want to drill down into this because I think it's fascinating and I imagine people listening will be interested or at least a lot of people will, is when you're note-taking and you're doing all this prep work before you start to draft... Um, I'm imagining it's a lot and it's kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. And you touched on this a little bit, but like how organized is it? Like, are you just able to kind of like spread the papers out on your desk and like, look at what you, and like, and just draw a structure from there? Or do you collate and like organize like quotes that might've come from different sources, but have thematic relation? Do you mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So usually what I'll do if I have, um, a really long notes document, it's like in Microsoft word and it's just usually like if I'm starting with a book, I'll have the title of the book and then I'll, you know, make notes with page numbers so I can go back and check my sources and make sure I'm not misquoting or I know just so I know where to find it. Um, and so I'll often have a list of basically books with all my notes from each book and then interspersed with quotes are, you know, my thoughts and commentary and associations. And so I always try to put quotes in quotes. <laughs> so I remember, like, yeah, right? I don't think I've, I've, screwed up yet like accidentally thinking a quote was my own i don't think i've done that but that's that's the fear you're like i'm a fucking genius (laughs) yeah Yeah, no i'm the the fear is like accidental plagiarism um but i so i try to make sure my process (laughs) doesn't allow for that and then once i start to see the structure i'll go to like the very top of the document and i'll kind of do like a rough outline Mm. like start here, then go there, then go there, then go there. Um, and then if it's a long essay, often before I write like a section, 
I'll kind of type out like a paragraph long, super sloppy version of what I think the whole section is going to look like. And so then that's kind of like my map or my outline. And then I just expand that paragraph into the full section. So maybe every sentence becomes a paragraph. And if there are quotes from books or whatever, like you, you just, they occur to you and you just know where to go find them and grab them. Mm-hmm. You're not like color coding per section or anything crazy like that. Nothing. Yeah. Not, you don't need to. <laughs> a beautiful mind or no. whatever. It's not, <laughs> not like that, but I'll it's usually like, have like a stack of books sitting next to me and I have this this little device, I think it's called a book weight, which whenever people see it in our apartment, they always say, what the hell is that? It's like a leather strap <laughs> with weights. Um, so I can hold a book open and the weight like holds it open so I can type with both hands while I'm looking at the quote. See, this is Very all handy. helpful. This is helpful. We're getting, <laughs> I feel like we're getting, and maybe you've already had this conversation elsewhere, but I feel like we're getting a detailed window into how you make this stuff. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Book weight, sticky tabs. Yeah. All this stuff is really important. Like I've, I've it's systematized and now like I need it and I always like I sit in the same place usually when I'm writing and like that's important to me too so this whole time I'm talking I'm like imagining me in my little spot it's at the end of our dining room table and like that's where the magic happens (laughs) so uh and you got to tell people you know you got to remind people too you got to quit watching tv (laughs) get tv out of your life people get really mad even like you know my close friends they're like you don't know because you've never watched The Wire all the way through. You don't know. Breaking Bad, dude. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I have a, I have a weird like. I'm such a news junkie, and it's probably some sort of weird, bad addiction, like mm-hmm. phone. Um, but like in terms of information diet, you know, like no TV. Um, do you read trashy magazines like like you, Us Weekly or anything like that? Do you have any like? No. Do you have any vices like in the information realm? I mean, I guess Twitter. Yeah. I, yeah. So because I work from home and it's kind of socially isolating, um, I do have a, a bad like daytime habit of just sort of, if I'm not doing anything else, like vacantly staring at Twitter. Um, so that's how I tend to kind of absorb secondhand news. I, I rarely actually you just need to follow click me. through and read full. <laughs> I see, yeah. I see. My, my constant <laughs> obsession, but like, I, I have very mixed feelings about it. That's, I think, part of the reason why I ask, because I'm like, I know it's unhealthy to a degree. I know it's toxic, but I also feel like some weird sense of responsibility to be like my little micro, like pinging, pinging a signal mm-hmm. that like hopefully is moving in some haphazard way towards objective truth mm-hmm. or like as close as you can come, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, just because there's so much disinformation and craziness out there. Right. Well, um, I mean, like everyone, I went through the, the period of just absolute news addiction, like before and after the 2016 election. And when I would like look back at my tweets from late 2016, early 2017, it was just, I was always freaking out about Trump, um, you know, like every day. <laughs> and I just stopped. Like I didn't, I didn't really purposely try. It wasn't some... You just had enough. Yeah, I just I just stopped caring so much, which I don't necessarily think is good. <laughs> no, but I can't... Um, but I'm not like... But I can't, there's so little I can do in my day-to-day um, that, you know, I try to stay informed enough. You know, I, I vote, like... <laughs> right. Um, but... Yeah, I just I have I have this forty hour a week job. I you know my husband has a chronic illness, so like I'm the breadwinner. And, and you and you write about it. This he's, he's losing his hearing. He, yeah, he has something called Meniere's disease, which is 
just sort of a, a label for something very mysterious. It's just like your ears are real fucked up. And um, so he's losing his hearing and he just gets really exhausted. And so it's hard for him to have like a full-time job. So he doesn't, he has like a part-time teaching job right. um, and he writes, but yeah, so like I can't like quit my job and become an activist. I just can't. Right. And, um, and books and writing and reading are so important to me. And I have, you know, this one wild, precious life here. Right. <laughs> right. So like, there's just, there's just not time for me to care about Trump every day. I just, yeah. and I remember right after the election, actually, I think it was right before, like thinking like, I'm really scared that, you know, our lives are going to change so drastically that I won't be able to care about books as much as I do now. And it felt like that for a little while. Um, but now I'm like, I'm just, I'm back in it. I'm like back to like, yeah, I, 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 this is what I care about. I fucking care about, I mean, not in that stupid, just like, I don't care what's in books. I just love books. Right, <laughs> like, right. No, no, no. But it's, it's, it's a line to hold and it's, yeah. and it's important. I mean, it's as important to work as, uh, as there is in a lot of ways. I mean, mm-hmm. it certainly holds its own. Right. Well, when I, you know, reading what people were writing during World War II, for example, is really helpful to me. It's mm-hmm. like, if you can be in a fucking prison camp and still care about books, then I can still care about books. There you go. So what? who are some of your heroes? Like oh, literary gosh. heroes? Um, I'm not someone who thinks in those terms so much, but I mean, if... Like favorites. If I, have a, if I had a literary hero, I think it would have to be Sontag. Um, but you know, even then it's funny to me because like, I love her essay so much and I don't think that she really considered herself an essayist. Um, she really wanted her fiction to be taken more seriously. And I think she felt a little boxed in it's by like Gore Vidal. <laughs> yeah. He was my same, he my was husband's same. a big Gore Vidal um, fan. Well, but he was always like my fiction and I was always like, no dude, it's your essays are better. He, funnily enough, Gore Vidal wrote a really bitchy review of Sontag's first novel. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah he was had, very dismissive. He was a, he was a prickly character. Oh, he was, he was. Um, so, but I'm interested. It, it's great to hear you say that because like when I think of you, in like the literary firmament, um, what comes to mind is like intellectual, like, and also like public intellectual, which like in, especially like present day America, um, (laughs) almost feels like goofy to say because our cultural values are so twisted and everyone's watching TV and you know, like they're like, what was it? Like, there's like, I want to say there were like a half a million people who showed up for Jean Paul Sartre's like funeral in Paris back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like an, a staggering number to consider for like a public intellectual, like a cafe philosopher. And you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. what's the corollary in America? I mean, Sontag, mm-hmm. but like that role yeah. is what I'm getting at. Like the role of the thinker, mm-hmm. the public thinker who's doing the deep work and is trying to sort things out on behalf of everyone else. And then hopefully like reconstitute and make it palatable so other people can go along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Like that's so valuable and so yeah. undervalued. Is that part of your project? Like, do you think about your work in a long-term sense and for lack of a better word, in a career sense as like, I'm going to try to do that. Even if like the culture won't meet me halfway, like that's, that's what I'm going to try to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. And I think that's, that's part of like specifically wanting to write essays um there's something about the form that 
I do think is, is resistant to market pressures in a way. Um, so I remember having a conversation with my agent where, you know, she asked me like, is it a deal breaker for you that it's essays and not just like a nonfiction book or a memoir or whatever. And I was like, yeah, I, I think like, that's really the tradition that I want to be in. Who's your agent? Manika Woods. Oh yeah. Okay. You know, her? Man, she's got such an impressive roster. Yeah. She's awesome. She's got good taste. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a, a couple of friends who, uh, she represents, but, uh, like I've noticed it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and I mean, I, I don't know. I don't notice that many agents for who they're taking on, but she's definitely got a good Yeah, I feel a, a lot eye. of affinity with her other authors for sure. Cool. So anyway, you were saying the essays and mm-hmm. is it a deal breaker? Um, yes. And I, I decided it really was because I mean, you know, the word pretty and my next book, there's really not like one single unifying I don't, I don't see how you could make it a book. Like it would, it would have to totally change. So, and that's a compromise that I just, I'm not willing to make. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe someday I would want to write just a nonfiction book. Um, but that wasn't what I was doing and I didn't want to twist the project into that. To fit some market need. Right. That's Um, a bad formula. Well, yeah. And I think it's tricky to get, it's still, even though it's, pretty trendy right now it's tricky to get um a collection of essays published still unless you have a really big platform so like most agents most publishers are looking for that kind of like voice driven here's you know this blogger who has fifty thousand twitter followers and you're on your way (laughs) right (laughs) um well yeah i'm I'm not saying i have like no quote-unquote platform but i think I still had editors tell me like, Oh, maybe if she had more of a platform or whatever, yeah. well, um, it's hard. Keep going. <laughs> I'm going to encourage you really. Cause you're good. And I think you can do it, but you have to see it through, but like no bullshit. And I think a lot of us feel that way. And I think a lot of the people who have sort of found your work early, it's like when you find a band before they really hit. <laughs> so keep going. I think it's going to happen for you. Um, Thank you. and I appreciate you taking the time. I always ask people this, like, um, because you're so intellectual, I'm curious, like spiritual side, are you a religious person at all? Are you an atheist? I'm an atheist. Yeah, you are. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not even Was Sontag an atheist? I don't, I don't even have like that thing where I like look at the sky and feel numinous bullshit. <laughs> like, so like the Denver, just like a the, robot. The, the hippie element of like Colorado front range Denver that doesn't touch you at all. Not at all. No, like I don't even like yoga. <laughs> None of it. <laughs> See, Denver None needs you. Not only does like the broader literary culture need you, but I think these places where yeah. there's, where there's like kind of uh, almost a uniformity mm-hmm. of uh, toe rings. I'm not into astrology. Nothing. <laughs> no. It's just books. Books of your church. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thanks for making time during your time in Los Angeles. I'm sorry it's raining in May, but uh, oh, it's, it's kind of so cool bad. too. Yeah. No, it's great. All right. Well, and Thank oh, what's so what's next? You got another essay collection? Yes, coming out in about a year. It's spring, already... spring 2020. It's um, I just have to do edits, which I'm dreading, but I'm gonna have to finish them by July. Who's publishing? FSG. Oh, well, look at you. <laughs> ah, see, I told you it's happening. <laughs> I have a good instinct for these things. Well, congratulations thank and thank you. you again. Thank you so much. All right, we did it. That's Elisa Gabbert. Her new essay collection is called "The Word Pretty." And it is out there now from Black Ocean Press. The Word Pretty by Elisa Gabbert. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Go get it. You need it. 
I'm rhyming. You can follow Elisa on Twitter. Her handle over there is at egabbert. She's a good follow. I think she's on Instagram. Her uh, website, I believe, is uh, elisagabbert.com. One more time, the book is called The Word Pretty. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music as always. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, if you want to transcribe 600 episodes, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to transcribe one episode, letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget this podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's available wherever you get your apps, the Other People with Brad Listy app. Just search for it by name. It's free. It's a good app. I like it. So uh, next week on the program, I have uh, Jennifer Pasteloff on the uh, microphone with me. Not on the same microphone, but she's got an excellent new book out and uh, is a very dear person. And we uh, got into it. So that is coming up a week from now. Jennifer Pasteloff. Stay tuned. Focus your energy. (laughs) 